Now on Sunday Extra, we're going to discuss scientists and dogged inquiries. Charles Darwin spent lots of time with Snow the Pomeranian, his beloved terrier Polly, and a friendly retriever called Bob. And he was nagged by questions about what dogs really think of us. What do they know and understand of the world? And do their emotions feel anything like ours? The curiosity of other famous scientists like Pavlov and Pasteur led to experiments of unspeakable cruelty. And it's fair to say that when you look at the history of dogs and science, the results reflect probably better on the dogs than they do on humans. But it is that interaction which is the subject of a fascinating new book called Wonder Dog. How the Science of Dogs Changed the Science of Life. It's written by zoologist and science writer Jules Howard, and I'm very pleased to say that he joins us from the UK now on Sunday Extra. Welcome, Jules. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, cheers. It's really great to have you, Jules, and it's a fascinating study that you've compiled. One of the interesting aspects of it is that, as you write, for many decades in the 20th century, dogs were actually considered unworthy of rigorous study. Why was that? You know, it's one of the things that I've learned from writing about the kind of history of science is there's kind of fads, just like there is in most aspects of culture. You have these sort of fads. So yeah, when I was uh, a young pup, so to speak, doing <laughs> zoology in the in the 1990s, dogs were kind of on the right on the edge. And they were, as you mentioned, Darwin's age, really, really important for science. And then by the sort of 80s and 90s, They've sort of been pushed aside because everyone's kind of like, oh, well, they're damaged good. You know, dogs have been hanging around with humans for so long. It's hard to know what their behaviours are and like what we've given to them and what we've bred into them. And then it's just so interesting in the last 10 years. It feels like, you know, every month or so there's a new study that's saying incredible things about animals. And guess what? Dogs are the, are the research tool to kind of help us. And not just dogs in a, in a kind of laboratory sense helping us. I'm talking about like family dogs, like the ones that we mm. share our homes with, contribute into science. So this kind of new wave of uh, animal intelligence science is, you know, it's on the back of treats and sort of cuddles and stuff <laughs> like that. It's really lovely. It's great. It was a pleasure writing about it. Absolutely. And we'll come back to the, the whole idea of love and dogs later on in our discussion. But Jules, the book is called Wonder Dog. What is a wonder dog? So a wonder dog is um, a dog that helps scientists look at the natural world in a different way. So you mentioned about Darwin's dogs. You know, those dogs were incredibly useful for Darwin to construct his own ideas about natural selection and evolution. Um, but they were also really helpful for talking to other people about those ideas. So dogs turn up quite a lot in his books because, you know, we all know dogs and we can sort of look at them and think, ask really big questions about life and, and nature. So it's that's that's the kind of theme of the book, really. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it starts off with dogs in a kind of like, oh, aren't they great? They, look, look what they're showing us with their wagging tails, etc. And actually it moves into somewhere much more sort of darker laboratory yes. science with Pavlov, as you mentioned. So, so these kind of waves of culture is just so interesting. And I, I, I really hope that, you know, the next 20 years, this, this progress continues, I suppose. And I've no doubt, Jules, that you have uh, so many wonder dogs that you love, perhaps equally. But if you had to pick out a couple of special wonder dogs that you could introduce the Sunday Extra audience to now, who would they be? One is definitely Flip. So Flip is a mixed breed. And it was uh, there's a scientist in Hungary who had a massive lab and fish tanks, and he was researching uh, like the evolution of mating strategies in fish. And this this scientist basically um, goes for a walk. Uh, he's up in the mountains in Hungary and bumps into this stray dog that lives next to a cafe. 
and the stray dog immediately you know kind of falls in love with um this scientist so much so that the scientist carries on walking like 14 miles and this dog carries on following and eventually the scientist is like okay, i'm going to take this dog home with me and <laughs> takes the dog home that night and then keeps a diary of all of the weird and wonderful things this dog gets up to that strange and unique behaviors of dogs really captured the um, excitement of this scientist and basically within two years all the fish had gone uh, and this this research facility became much more about families bringing their dogs in and these and um, these guys at that research facility called the family dog project basically you know starting to answer some really really fascinating questions about dogs so within two years of that meeting flip um you know this the, the family dog project was producing um information about how dogs attach like humans do how puppies respond like children do in the presence of strangers the fact that dogs can follow a human pointing gesture like no other animal so the science was kicking off really really fast there and again it's all because of this one dog flip that one moment and it's just it's beautiful on sunday extra we are speaking with jules howard author of wonder dog how the science of dogs changed the science of life and Jules, another dog that you write about is the famous brown dog and the brown dog affair. What was the brown dog affair? And could you introduce us to some of the humans involved as well? So there's uh, the late 19th century was like a melting pot in you know societies um, across the world. Mm. And the, one of the reasons for that was, of course, rabies and the massive rises in levels of rabies in major cities as people were moving from place to place and animals were moving from place to place much more. Um, so, you know, places like Sydney had really, really kind of hardcore campaigns, I suppose, to rid the streets of dogs. Um, and the same in London, in New York, different strategies. You know, some um, some countries paid residents to go out and hunt the dogs and kill them themselves and gave them a little, little bounty. Um, and in the UK, obviously, dog rescue centres, Battersea Dogs Home. It's like a kind of world-famous centre, really, that Charles Dickens was a part of and Queen Victoria was a part of. And so street dogs and rabies were the big issue. And by removing street dogs, all of the dogs that people saw were the dogs in our homes. So dogs became less about the sort of wild and much more about um, comfiness and cosiness and companionship. And at about the same time, because of the Industrial Revolution, you've got kind of a mobilisation of particularly women um, much more free time and um, seeking status that was not afforded to them, you know, in decades previous. So starting these campaign movements um, on behalf of dogs used uh, in research, laboratory research, so they're fighting against scientists and you know, the, the anti-vivisectionist movement, as it was called. So you've got this sort of bubbling up, I suppose, of this whole new movement, and it culminated about the about uh, nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds, culminated in. Um, two scientists, well, two Swedish uh, feminists, I should say, who pretended they wanted to be medical research scientists. So being women, they couldn't participate in uh, education uh, in the same way that men could. So they had to sort of watch from the sidelines and um, and read the research notes of men. But they did manage to um, take some secret notes of some of the experiments going on on dogs. And one of the dogs was um, operated on whilst they're alive, which the the government had recently made illegal at the time and so they wrote this uh this memoir like uh it's called the shambles of science and it basically just completely sold out it was like the talk of the town mm. um 
really, really big book. And eventually that, that particularly mobilized all sorts of um, characters, including Queen Victoria, against the laboratory um, trend, if you like, for, for using dogs in research. So much so that it kind of ended in Britain at that time. And the research centers um, using dogs in other countries were the ones that got all the results that got scientists talking. So, you know, Pavlov is the great example. Mm. You know, we could have had Pavlovs in multiple countries in the West, but, you know, it's no surprise really that that was a, a really big um, uh, uh, push, if you like. Pavlovian thinking was a really big push coming from Russia, really. One of the really appealing ideas at the heart of your book, Jules Howard, is that the more compassionate we've become in our explorations into the minds of dogs, the more intelligent they've shown us to be. Could you explain what you mean by that? So if we look at a lot of the research traditionally on uh, animals such as parrots and um, chimpanzees, for instance, you know, those animals now legally by law are really well treated, um, but they're kept in, uh, you know, captive surroundings that, uh, you know, don't necessarily in every way mimic what they've evolved to do. But dogs are different. Dogs have evolved to live alongside us, live, you know, in the human ecosystem. They're very much an animal that is you know, has a lot of fun, if you like, hanging around with, with humans, mostly. For a long time, we've been really confused, haven't we, about whether animals kind of know what's going on in the minds of others. So this thing called mm. theory of mind. And in the 80s and 90s, it was the talk of the town, you know, can chimpanzees really understand what other chimpanzees are thinking? And the truth is, you know, it's still kind of hard for us to understand. But with dogs, you can kind of see it in a really obvious way when they're happy. You know, if you go to a dog park, we, we see dogs racing around. But if you kind of look at them in slow motion, you can see that they're making these uh, loads and loads of decisions, if you like, to try and get dogs to play better. Like some dogs like to run, some like to roll around, some like to chase one another, I should say. Um, and it's in the dog's interest to kind of almost manipulate the, you know, the person, the dog they're playing with to get kind of what, what they want, the sort of play they want. And so that. As I say, if that was in chimpanzees or, or dolphins, that would be absolutely unbelievably important science. But it's actually dogs in play that are giving us that window into um, animal minds. So, you know, I do think that this, this compassionate angle will get even more results. And there might be results even in cats, for instance, or other animals that spend a lot of their time around humans. So it's kind of an exciting time for, for this kind of research science. Jules Howard, the book leads up to a really thought-provoking chapter in which you really chart out what you could describe as the scientific case for describing the attachment that dogs have to humans as love. Could you explain that a little for us? I've always been a little bit, um, not suspicious, but kind of uncomfortable when scientists are kind of talking about animal love and mm. uh, you know animal grief and mourning, and don't get me wrong, you know there's they, they they could well be, and certainly lots of individual cases that make you think, hmm, that's really interesting. But I must admit, with the word love and how we use it in terms of our relationship with dogs, I think I've kind of come to the conclusion now. But the that the strength of the evidence, so the multiple sources that give us really good handle on what looks like love there's so many now that i think we probably should get used to using this word um a little bit more frequently when it comes to yeah dogs and our relationship with them so i mentioned um the the attachment studies mm. the strange uh, stranger um situations they're called strange situations where um you know strangers walk into a room and you watch what puppies do and you see that you know their movements are the same as, as children 
the amazing um, oxytocin studies. This is a hormone in our blood that sort of shoots up in moments of um, companionship. And dogs and humans, they both predictably go up, you know, in one another's company. And also looking at their genetics, you know, compared to wolves, dogs have loads of these strange markers in their genes that code for increased sociality. And also uh, these fMRI studies where dogs are trained to sit in fMRI scanners and have their brain scanned. And you can see really clearly, you know, that, that when, it, you know, their human companion walks into the room and says, hello, boy, you know, you can see the parts of their brain lighting up, the pleasure centers lighting up in exactly the same way that human brains light up in the same situation. Well, it's a wonderful book and it's called Wonder Dog, How the Science of Dogs Changed the Science of Life. Jules Howard, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thanks very much for having me. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.